Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the Sustainable Investing Perspectives podcast on the UBS Conversations podcast channel. Joining us for the conversation today, glad to welcome back from the UBS Chief Investment Office, Amantia Muhadini, Sustainable and Impact Investing Strategist for the Americas. We're also joined today by Nikita Singal of Lazard. Nikita serves as Co-Head of Sustainable Investment and ESG at Lazard Asset Management. Up front for our listeners, I do want to point out that our conversation today will tie right into the latest Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication, which is a monthly publication from the UBS Chief Investment Office and can now be located on UBS.com slash CIO. Among the topics covered within the publication this month include sustainable aviation, Asia's plastic problem, and some regulatory developments within Europe, the latter topic we'll be spending some time on today's episode discussing. So with that, Amantia, Nikita, uh, great to be with you both, and thank you for spending some time today with our listeners and our clients. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having us, Ben. Our pleasure. So with that, let's move right into it. As mentioned, there have been some notable regulatory developments taking shape in Europe, uh, referencing the European Union just passed the Nature Restoration Law. Now, this law requires 20% of the continent's degraded ecosystems to be restored by the year 2030. So, Amantia, as a starting point, can you speak a bit to the implications here for investors globally and provide some background on this regulatory development? Of course, uh, happy to, to start us off here. Um, so, so the law was passed by the European Parliament, and it's important to understand that it will undergo sort of additional debates across various EU um, regulatory governance bodies, uh, as well as it will have to then be transposed down to the to the nation state. So, this is not a done deal, so to speak. But the reason why we're highlighting it in this month's perspective is because. Um, first and foremost, it's another example of continued regulatory action, in this case legislative action, in the European Union around questions of decarbonization in nature. Um, in particular, this law aims to contribute to the EU's objectives around both reducing carbon emissions and, in this case, protecting the environment. Um, now, to give you uh, and, and our listeners a sense of the 20% objective of restoration, um, there is an estimate that indicates that about 60 to 70% of EU soils are currently uh, considered unhealthy, according to a report by the European Commission. This has significant impacts as we project forward and we think about opportunities around agriculture as well as just generally food production on, on the European continent. And unhealthy really means that these soils lack the right nutrients, are at risk of erosion, or are degraded, among other types of classifications. So as we think about this objective of protecting 20%, that's a smaller part um, of the whole, but of course it also implies um, additional investments or kind of per perhaps restructuring and reorganization of the food production system in the EU, um, as well as a need for reallocating some resources. So, so along these, these lines is where we encourage investors to start paying attention and thinking about what this implies. So Nikita, we'd like to get your thoughts on the implications here as well, including thoughts around opportunities that exist as a result within the agricultural space. Uh, sure, and I, I couldn't agree more with Amantia on you know how this is a great example of how seemingly 
you know, fluffy ESG topics start to actually get priced into financial markets. And we always talk about this at Lazard Asset Management, where when we think about ESG, ultimately our goal is how do you discover and price environmental, social governance, risks, and opportunities. That is our definition, and that is what we're doggedly focused on. And often the way these issues get priced are through mechanisms like regulation or shifts in consumer preferences or big leaps in technology. And um, this perhaps is one example where all three are at play, and regulation in particular is kind of at the forefront of driving a change as Amantia described, uh, with respect to our food systems, thus impacting many sectors, particularly the agriculture industry. Uh, when I think about the implications, I think they can be large because this is not just a commitment, but it is uh, the goal is for it to be a legally binding target, and it really puts the EU's biodiversity strategy into law. And what I mean by this is almost 200 countries ratified their commitment to achieving the 2030 biodiversity targets. This was at the Montreal Biodiversity Summit, or the COP15 as we know it, last year. Uh, but none of those really have legal attachments, uh, legal requirements attached to these, these targets. And therefore, we it was very hard for us as investors to really think about financial and legal repercussions for countries that were not doing their part to, to meet those targets. Um, all of that until now, where we now have the nature res restoration law in the EU. Uh, and we think it's significant in three ways. One is there are clauses that give it prior that help us prioritize renewable energy related investments, whether it's on the construction or storage side or investments in the grid. And we think that this would help position the EU to make certain net zero related investment commitments um, in, in a more aggressive fashion. Um, it clarifies some of the opportunities set in that way, and there has been you know, significant conversation about the relative competitiveness of the EU to the U.S., especially against the backdrop of the U.S.'s Inflation Reduction Act. So we think that this uh, nature restoration law helps clarify some of those opportunity sets in the EU. Secondly, it can create opportunities for certain industries like precision agriculture, uh, equipment manufacturers that can help us uh, continue to achieve the crop yields that we need as a population while still being able to do it in a more energy-efficient way, in a way that is less uh, creating lesser risks for biodiversity and helping maintain ecosystems. Uh, it could create opportunities for data providers and satellite uh, traceability auditors, so essentially everyone that helps provide data and information on uh, and tracking on biodiversity metrics and, and associated metrics. Uh, it could also create uh, opportunities for carbon markets because of their various afforestation rules within there. And lastly, uh, creating perhaps opportunities for alternative meats to beef, uh, which tend to require less land, such as chicken or even other alternative meats and other uh, alternative protein consumption like fisheries and, uh, and, and others. Um, so those are some of the opportunities that we're starting to look at as we unpack this law. Quite a lot of considerations there when it comes to positioning, as you mentioned, the Kita within the agricultural space. Now, Amatia, to add on to the nature restoration law, regulators across Europe have been at work on regulatory and legislative actions aimed at sustainability, uh, notably as it relates to the final ESG disclosure rules under the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, or CRSD. So, what is the scope of companies being impacted? Here and what kind of reporting here does the directive call for? 
Thanks, Dan. Really, and, and thanks, Nikita, for all the examples of the more systematic uh, investment opportunities that the EU restoration law w- would create, which, which I think we're, we're very much kind of in, in agreement on. Um, it's interesting because this, the second question that you're asking, Dan, it, it almost points to the second or to the other side of the coin here, which um, is namely for those companies that aren't providing these very specific, very targeted um, kind of solutions or opportunities to react to some of these incentives or bright lines created by regulators, you know, how, what does sustainability mean? How does it come into play? And this corporate sustainability reporting directive may be part of that answer. Um, to give a little bit more detail here, the directive was adopted in 2022, um, and it's it sets essentially common reporting rules on environmental, social, and governance data that companies will have to start reporting on starting in 2025. So really starting for the data that covers the fiscal year 2024. Um, the, these com- the companies that will subject to, be subject to this are not only EU domiciled large companies, but also those entities which have either subsidiaries in the European Union or uh, are operating in EU markets, generate revenue in EU markets that exceeds uh, 150 million uh, euros. Now, essentially, if we look at what this means, who's covered, um, estimates would vary to, to essentially most of the S&P 500 market cap, over 80% of the S&P 500 companies would be subject to this reporting uh, requirement under the EU. Similarly, over 70% in, in estimates from us and others um, would, of, of the global uh, all-country world index from, the, from MSCI would also be subject to this requirement. Now, what are the requirements? Well, companies will have to report on, on financial and material, environmental, social, and governance data points, which will help us as investors, hopefully over time, to have more granular and more comparable points of information on which to make decisions. Also, what it means is that for those investors who are sitting in other jurisdictions, say in Asia Pacific or here in the United States, who may be think that the companies they're investing in don't have to provide this ESG data, maybe that it's a time to think again, um, as the, the EU regulations here uh, is quite broadly reaching and will have an impact that will be quantified in dollars or euros or yen that we need to start uh, considering right now. So, Nikita, to branch off this a bit further in terms of data that is available, what companies can report, how does the scope of available biodiversity data compare to that of other sustainability data, such as on gender or emissions? Yeah, it's a great question, Dan. The important, I think, uh, point, salient point here, I think, is just the direction of travel and where we've given a few examples of uh, regulation and disclosure-related laws, but it is only getting more uh, more prolific around the world, particularly with the EU. Another example that comes to mind for me is the EU deforestation-free regulation, the EU DR. Um, tons of, of acronyms uh, here, uh, but from 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 December 2024, um, there will be a requirement for companies to disclose uh, if they are um, they have products in their supply chain. Uh, that are uh, resulting in deforestation anywhere in the world. So to Amantia's point, it's not necessarily confined to uh, products manufactured in Europe, but products that might be uh, sourced and ultimately become part of the supply chain of products that are consumed in Europe. And in this case, uh, there would be real fines to the extent of almost 4% of the turnover of the business. Uh, That's a pretty significant chunk of the, the revenue stream for Europe, for European companies. 
and coming particularly from uh, seven commodities uh, related to cattle, cocoa, coffee, oil palm, rubber, soy, and wood. And so you can imagine the broader implications across all sorts of industries that use these uh, raw materials into their into their product um, in, in the manufacturing of their product. To your question about biodiversity data, I think it's still very early days um, as these regulations start to get mandated. Currently, a lot of it is about self-disclosed data, and as you can imagine, it is uh, for the data that we do have, which is a very small percentage, um, the reporting metrics are often not consistent uh, and, and difficult to compare across different companies. Uh, because of this race uh, on, on ESG data in general, we have seen many large ESG data providers come up with a biodiversity data product. Uh, we've spent a lot of time unpacking such data um, products at, at our firm and, in fact, have a paper on biodiversity data that, that uh, for those interested, you can take a look from our website. Uh, but what we find is that uh, many times what ESG data providers will do is try and simplify things into a single metric. So in the case of biodiversity, people use MSA or mean species abundance. But what you're essentially doing is whittling down a vast array of data points that are actually very location-specific and trying to put it into one single biodiversity score. And this is the danger not just with analysis of biodiversity risk, but really with any kind of ESG analysis uh, ESG is so contextual, and what matters to one company in terms of what is material from an opportunity or risk perspective can be completely different than what is material to another company. So it doesn't just apply to biodiversity data, but we see this even in other sustainability data, as you alluded to, Dan, one example being gender diversity data. And you would expect that in this day and age, it's very easy to get gender diversity data across companies. But our Minerva gender diversity strategy, our, our lead portfolio manager there, always, uh, you know, is, is complaining about the lack of high quality data on, on, on a data set like that that has been in existence for a while. And what it comes down to, therefore, is the need for, for really fundamental bottom-up research that is done by analysts and portfolio managers, not by, by some special ESG team, but really by people who are taking these issues into context and incorporating it into their financial modeling and their investment analysis. Um, and biodiversity, yes, has a long way to go, but every aspect of ESG data, one can argue today, cannot really be done well by looking at backward-looking data or ratings providers, ESG ratings providers. It needs to be done by bottom-up active investors, uh, a lot of it being qualitative data, but the ability to contextualize that and, and build it into your investment analysis is, is what remains key. Well, Lamonti and Nikita, very insightful discussion today. We covered a lot of ground for our listeners, our clients. And again, we'll point our listeners to the latest Sustainable Investing Perspectives publication to read further into these regulatory developments as well as the other topics covered within the publication. Though, thank you both for joining us today on Sustainable Investing Perspectives. Appreciate your time and your insights. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. And from UBS Studios, I'm Dan Cassidy. Thank you for joining us. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and is 
is published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.